We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. I think I have brain worms. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals. I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me as always... Simona Falanga. And first of all, I want to make a really special uh, announcement. I have eaten dinner before we recorded. <laughs> it's a momentous day. Uh, I'm not hungry, so I won't be um, dying during this recording. That's right, because some of the animals we'll, we'll be discussing are not exactly the ones we'd associate with dinner, nor what True, and what are we discussing today, Samara? Uh, we will be looking at uh, native uh, introduced animals in the archaeological record. More specifically, all the animals that uh, you presumed have always lived in your country, but are actually from somewhere else. Which will be great, because I really don't know any animals that live in Britain still. That's right. Um, as per usual, there'll be a lot of British archaeology. <laughs> and also, like, big sort of, well, not a disclaimer, there's going to be a lot of Roman archaeology. Which is good, because that just... means you just talk. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure you want that. But, yeah, lots of Romans. So if you hate the Romans, I guess skip this episode, because Romans everywhere. Well, I mean, really, skip the whole podcast, because I think you bring up Romans in every episode. Oh, don't skip the podcast, so I'm doing a really bad job at, uh, you know, promoting us. I'm the involuntary Roman archaeologist. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so before we start, as always, want to give, you know, a bit of a breakdown of what we're actually talking about. So, you know, what makes the animal native as opposed to introduced? Um, not everyone probably knows those kind of terms. So just kind of break it down. Um, an animal that's native to a region uh, is a species that existed within the bioregion through a natural source rather than a human-induced one. So they had been living there for, you know, a certain amount of time consistently. But then, because uh, an issue with sort of uh, whether an animal is native or introduced is that the definition also depends on who you talk to. Because sometimes mm. if a species has been introduced by anthropogenic factors, but has been consistently supporting itself by its own means over a period of time, 
then that tends to get classed as native. I mean, we'll cover it in a bit later, but one of the animals that is classed as, sort of as a native British mammal is the rabbit. As you will find out, the rabbit is not from Britain, but it sort of has been here for so many thousands of years that it's almost as if it was, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So like all science, uh, there is absolutely no consistency in our terminology. <laughs> Surprise! Yay! Nothing is ever easy. <laughs> but just to kind of give you a better idea of what native animals are, uh, for those of you in Britain, some animals that are native to Britain include the roe deer, the red deer, the European hedgehog, the red squirrel, and the common shrew. And I want to quick no- side note: I did not realize there were squirrels in Britain. Excuse me. Wait, you didn't realize that we had squirrels. Right. Okay. Um, this this show is a bit weird because, let's see, uh, Simona's never had chili, and Alex has never. Please tell me you've seen a squirrel in Britain. I've never seen a squirrel in Britain. I don't think I have. I, I'm sorry. What? I'm pretty sure I haven't. Hot? Right. Have you ever been to a park? Like, yeah, but I've seen like birds. No, they're squirrels. So you've never even seen a great squirrel? No. Look, I can understand if you've never had squirrel chili. I mean, that makes sense, but you've never seen squirrel. Oh, it's I'm weird. like pretty sure. <laughs> Full disclosure, the the flu is going around in my household, so I might just be like completely out of it. But I'm pretty sure I've never seen a squirrel. You know, next time next you'll be telling me you've never seen a haggis. Oh don't And those are native to Scotland. Uh, there there I, I it wasn't me, but I will say that there's someone that I know who I've dug with who we said uh a haggis was an actual animal and she believed us. Just that's all I'm gonna say. Archaeologist. <laughs> Uh, you know, but like, if you don't know any better, you know, you don't know any better. You know, one leg shorter than the other, and all that. Um, <laughs> That's another episode of Zuark. Uh, what else? What else do you not think is like? Okay, right. Like, do you think <laughs> raccoons exist in the UK? Because raccoons we don't have. Uh, yeah, I've learned that because I kind of assumed that they were here, and then my partner had to tell me that uh, I was so, wrong. So wait, 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 wait. You thought raccoons were here, but squirrels were not. <laughs> I was always under the impression, I swear to God, I think someone told me once that there were no squirrels in Britain. And I just, I guess I've just kind of internalized that so much that I now have squirrel blindness, where I can't see squirrels if they're like in front of me in Britain. <laughs> So you're like the opposite of that dog. Yeah. Wow, this is, I can't believe I've been put on blast. Uh, yeah, well, that's what this show is about, isn't it? You put me on blast, I put you on blast. That's kind of what we do. <sighs> All right, getting back on track now. So now that we've talked about native animals and uh, the fact that there are squirrels in Britain, <laughs> we can now talk about introduced species. So um, as you can probably guess... Uh, introduced species are basically what the name says. They've been introduced by, usually by human means, specifically by human activities. Uh, it can be intentional. There's a lot of examples of history where people have brought, you know, uh, domesticated animals over when they've migrated, uh, you know, even stuff like pets. But it can also be unintentional stowaways, uh, which, like you'll see in some of our examples later on in the episode. 
So we'll be covering sort of more in the next segment, some examples of species that have been introduced either intentionally or otherwise to Britain and other countries. But I guess uh, one point I should probably be making here that a lot of the species that we'll be discussing, we have previously covered in other episodes. So feel free to go back to those episodes if you wish to know more information about them. But I guess one of the main ones for Britain anyway, of like introduced animals, Sometimes we have um, some introduced uh, species that are almost like quasi-global in the way that they can now be found pretty much everywhere around the globe. And some of those include uh, the most known domesticates, um, looking here at sheep, which were brought over, well, they're pretty much worldwide now, and they were brought over specifically to Britain during the Neolithic as the animal where its wild ancestor actually originates from Central Asia. The same with goats, uh, which were domesticated so around, around the Middle East and were also introduced to Britain during the Neolithic. And the same applies for cattle, actually, because even though, the, uh, as we've discussed previously, the ancestor of uh, the cattle, the aurochs, was present in Britain, some studies have shown that uh, the cattle that was present in Britain had actually been domesticated elsewhere and then brought to Britain. Not to say that they probably haven't attempted and succeeded to domesticate aurochs in Britain, but it probably didn't take off as much as just bringing in the finished product, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have your other favourite example, which are cats. Kitty cats uh, that are also, well, not native to Britain. That Again, as we discussed, unfortunately, we're going to be repeating ourselves a, a bunch in this episode. The cat is the domesticated version of the Felis silvestris libica, which is the... African wildcat. While there is a cat that is native to Britain, the Felis silvestris, so the European wildcat, that is not the species that was tamed and domesticated, it was actually its African subspecies that was. So the cat, the domestic cat itself, was introduced to Britain, most likely during the late Iron Age, early Roman period, and also elsewhere in Europe, the most notable example being in Cyprus where there were like no cats native to the island at all. And all of a sudden, uh, a cat pops up in a, well, next to a human burial, well, within a human burial, thus suggesting that the animals were indeed purposely introduced by ship to the island. Which is uh, more common than you'd think, uh, what I've found out <laughs> kind of during researching this. I actually have a question for you, Simona. Oh, because I, I actually realized I didn't look this up, so this is me just not doing my research well. Uh, <laughs> but uh, with these kind of domesticated animals, do you know if they're just now considered like like naturalized species, or are they still considered introduced? I think they're sort of again. I think it depends very much on who you talk to, but I'm pretty sure like sheep are considered sort of as a native species of Britain. It's almost like by the sheer amount of sheep mm. that we have in this country is almost like, I wouldn't go as far as saying a national symbol, but it's just it's something you associate with Britain mm. because there is a lot of uh, sort of sheep farming going on. But mm. I guess it depends who you talk to. Yeah, it's really confusing, actually. Uh, I think after a while, I started getting into a weird like brain loop of thinking about this, of just like, okay, so do you go 
that far back to kind of consider uh, animals that are native? Or do you have to consider like, oh, they've been here for like a thousand years. I guess we can call them native now. Uh, it's like a weird like taxonomy kind of system that uh, I think at the end of the day just kind of makes me more confused. But then again, it's me. So... Well, it is. I remember having, I know we're going to cover it in the next segment to more detail, but I was having like years ago a sort of an in-depth discussion with someone uh, specifically about the fallow deer. Again, as we've covered before, the fallow deer was sort of, well, the fallow deer was actually present in Britain during the late Pleistocene, went extinct. The Romans introduce it to Britain. It sort of dies out with the Romans and then we see it again fully established when the Normans came to Britain and the population of fallow deer that introduced are what we find in Britain today. So to me, that would make it an introduced species. But then I was not not mm-hmm. arguing, but discussing with someone who was saying, well, no, they were here in the Pleistocene, thus they are native. Mm-hmm. There's been an interruption, like at hiatus, and that's how you pronounce it, and say, well, they weren't here, but then they were introduced and it's, sort of as they never left sort of thing. Yeah. It's again another one that we'll be covering the wild boar. Because the wild boar is native to Britain. It was then hunted to extinction and now it's been reintroduced. So do you now class the wild boar as an introduced species or is it a native one? Because of course the population that is here today has no links to the population that was here in the medieval period when it went extinct. Yeah. Better column A, column B. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I never really thought of like the kind of, I don't want to use the word politics because it's not the right word, but there's so much more complexity in terms of what's a native species and what's uh, introduced species. I always kind of considered it to be very cut and dry. You know, these were here when, you know, since the dawn of time. So uh, they're obviously native species. These were clearly introduced when, you know, humans moved from here to there. So those are been introduced. Um, but yeah, it's there's so many blips in time, it looks like, where we have lost a species and then have returned them to a region. So yeah, it's Really, that's actually really interesting. But yeah, it, no. if, if anything, it just uh, it confirms the point um, that the collective noun for archaeologists should be an argument, not a test pit. <laughs> or um, there's there's so many I've seen the last time. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? Is that um, many roads lead to the same place. There are many ways of um, trying to figure out backwards. Uh, oh my, I, I, I want that on a t-shirt or a poster. There are many pathways to the same direction. You're, you're inspirational this evening. To the same place. Oh, oh, oh. I, 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 feel, I feel like there should be a sunset in the background <laughs> or like somebody surfing a wave, you know. It should be one of those inspiration posters that you put in like a uh, CEO's office. Hang in there. <laughs> Hang in there, baby. It gets better. Does it? You can t- t- just keep trying. You'll find out after the not if you're an arche- Not if you're an archaeologist. <laughs> I love the like the demotivational posters are even better. Oh, love them. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean that's that's the thing is that like there's lots. Of, it's it's a, like all of archaeology is just a puzzle piece, you know. Yeah, but does it get better? I guess you'll find out in the next segment. 
Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to z-e-n-c-a-s-t-r dot com and use the code animals spread the word the jc penny friends and family sale is back and this week we're passing the savings on to you use your extra 30 percent off coupon to prep your home and style your family for easter that's extra savings on top of our great low prices plus share your coupon with everyone you know and love it's always better when we save together jc penny make everybody count offer valid 311 through 317 exclusions apply see store or jcp.com for details As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back and let's get right into it because if, I think if Simona has to wait another second, yeah, uh, she might explode. Armed. Yeah. All right. Let's let's barrel on through to the uh, Simona's Roman archaeology show. <laughs> ah, right. In terms like animals that you perhaps never thought might have come from elsewhere. Rabbits, not native. Although we do have some Iron Age examples, they were originally, supposedly, brought over by the Romans and then were established fully in the wild by the 12th century. Brown hair, also introduced in the case of Britain, again, during the Iron Age. The, not to be confused with the species of hair that is actually native to Britain, that being the mountain hair. Now, both rabbits yep. and uh, brown hares are part of a large interdisciplinary or, uh, investigation carried out, well, headed by Naomi Sykes. I think we've discussed this before. It's the Easter Bunny Project. Yeah. Um, so we're going to, if Naomi's listening, first of all, hey, what's up? Uh, we'd love to do a post that with you. Second of all, uh, she's kind of the zoo archaeology queen in terms of giant projects. <laughs> so we'll be mentioning her projects a lot. Um, so, yeah. Uh, you're welcome for the uh, free promotions. So, <laughs> like she going... needs it. <laughs> no, probably doesn't need it. <laughs> uh, going down our list, rats, without meaning the black rat, ratus ratus, not to be confused with the brown rat. <laughs> Again, introduced in the Roman period. The earliest examples around the first century, and then they had the experience of decline during the Saxon period. And the numbers rise again during the late Saxon period. House mouse, 
again, that lovely little critter that gets into your house when you don't really want it to. Not because it isn't cute, but because it does tend to have a tendency to sort of poop on all the things you love. That's also mm-hmm. introduced. Or die. You know, die in the kitchen wall where I can't get to it and I just have to live with that for like 10 days. Yeah, how dare you die so inconveniently, mouse? It smelled so bad. I lived in a studio flat. There was no escaping that smell. But wait, isn't that like a free like reference skeleton for you? I couldn't get it. Otherwise, I would have removed that thing. It was maddening. (laughs) And then boiled where was it? Like, was it stuck between, like, the wall or something? It was, like, like behind, like, I, it was behind something, and I couldn't get to it. I was, and it, it was a rented thing, so I couldn't, like, dig a hole into it, which I wanted to do. So right. this is a call-out for all house mice who decide to die in really hard-to-reach places. It's very inconsiderate. Think about your human friends and comrades who are living with you. Thank you solidarity with our mice friends but obviously still bash the fish friends exactly but also think of it hundreds of years down the line would there eventually be an archaeological excavation of that studio flat and they find the mouse inside the wall so be like oh that's going to be some sort of ritualistic deposit to like scare away <laughs> mice from an alternate plane it's like oh no it's just bane of my life anyway how's mice, mice what were you saying <laughs> Also introduced, unlike the wood mouse, which is actually native to Britain, the house mouse originally came from the Middle East and uh, came most likely as a stowaway to Britain in, I'll have you guess, really, in the Roman period. Um, I just want you to say it. Romans! This is your time to shine. Oh, God. Though Iron Age examples exist, notably, as I think uh, O'Connor explained in one of his papers, uh, Coy identified some mouse remains at Danbury. So that may potentially be an Iron Age example. The issue with that is I think within the same deposit, there was rabbit that was definitely intrusive or almost Mm -hmm. definitely intrusive. So, but yeah, supposedly we may have an Iron Age example. While we're talking about rodents, um, the edible dormouse also introduced also by the Romans, because uh, and that was very much deliberate because it was viewed as a delicacy. So, hmm. hey. one point I wanted to make, I think, about sort of the introduction, the introduction dates for rodents. That, of course, it is quite difficult to tell because owing to the scarce recovery of rodent remains, because that's you know because they're so small, you rely on sampling methods of course hand collection methods will miss a lot of the remains due to their size also if you do recover rodent remains now were they actually in situ or are they the result of biotubation so an animal that much later on has burrowed into your archaeological feature and has again inconveniently died (sighs) just zooarchaeology would be so much easier if all these animals would stop being giant inconveniences to me personally i'm just saying I'm just wondering, um, do we know, is there like a good difference between like, what was that? What I'm thinking, introduced mice? Are there any mice that are native to the UK? And then, you know, we've talked before in episodes where it's quite difficult to, you know, to differentiate the morphology in skeletal structure between quite similar species. So how would we actually know 
that something's an introduced mice species rather than a native one. Well, the wood mice, uh, the wood mice, the wood mouse is native to Britain. Exactly. If you pay, if you paid attention, you would have known. Yeah, we literally just said that like maybe five minutes ago. What kind of producer are you? Really? Did you actually? Oh, for God's sake! Right. <laughs> I obviously zoned out. Wow! You heard it here, that folks. Ter- you heard it here, folks. <laughs> You didn't think squirrels existed in the UK, okay? <laughs> that was a whimsical little story that I told that was really funny. And you just put yourself out of the job market for producing stuff. Oh, God. Why am I here? I don't know. But in terms of morphology, I mean, I think, I don't know about you, Simona, but I'm definitely the wrong person to ask about that. I, I I'm just happy that I can tell the difference between rat and mouse uh, bones every so often. But if it came to doing mouse by species, I would probably explode. I'm not actually certain. I, I presume that because uh, the house mouse, well, it's not necessarily a domesticated species or more of a synanthropic species. So that being one that sort of thrives mm-hmm. on an artificial habitat and lives near and or around humans and benefit from their activity. So I don't think they would have had as much change in morphology as sort of domesticated species, which we've selectively bred, because almost like the house mouse sort of selectively bred itself. Mm-hmm. So it could eat more of our grains. We d- I just realized we actually, I don't think we've done a rodents episode, have we? Not yet, no. Yeah, we should do that at some point and probably get uh, uh, David Orton, if you're listening. Uh, hit us up. I know you're doing a lot of stuff with uh, rats and stuff that I don't understand. So, yeah, we could. Ha- it would be great to have someone who actually knows about rodents, because clearly I don't. <laughs> because the thing, I think with the wood mouse and the house mouse, because in terms of appearance, you know, when they have all the squishy bits they're on, It'll be a bit easier to tell them apart in terms of colouring of the coats and whatnot, but I'm not yeah. sure how that translates in terms of skeletal structure because it's not something. Again, it's something that doesn't pop up too often unless you're looking for it or you're sort of sieving or sampling. But if you're just hand collecting bone in just like sort of box standard excavation, you don't tend to find as much rodent remains. Yeah, it's just it's it's like fish bones where it's like. You know, unless you're actively looking for it, you're probably going to end up missing out on a lot of it because it'll get swept away with uh, spoil heap and stuff. But moving on from rodents, uh, <laughs> I think you want to talk a little bit about I mean, there's fallow the, the, deer. The fallow deer again, which I think well, we've covered not <laughs> 10 minutes ago. What I will say about it is, again, there's another research project which is headed by Naomi Sykes. That's looking at... We love you, Naomi. <laughs> Yay! as looking into the origins of the fallow deer and the distribution patterns as they were introduced by humans. So if you're interested in that, we'll put in, again, a link in the show notes, and the name of the project is On the Trail of the Fallow Deer, funded by the AHRC. It's extremely cool and very big. Yeah, it's very cool. And it's actually, like, um, it probably answers a lot of the questions we had uh, in terms of uh, reintroducing species and stuff. Because the fallow deer is such a weird case in terms of uh, introduced species. Well, yeah, there's probably going to be something about it in the methodology, which we should have read. Yeah, but we did not. <laughs> sort of last arch- or earlier archaeological example, bit of a honourable 
invertebrate mention, as uh, I don't know enough to be talking about this, uh, nor you possibly, but I thought I'd give it a try. So a little horrible, uh, horrible mention, the Orizathelius surinamensis, also known as the saw-toothed grain beetle. Now, the grain beetle, as it, in the name, is a, store, a stored grain pest. It's a synanthropic species, so as a, uh, we've mentioned before, it lives near and or around humans and benefits from their activities. And it's just this little dark brown beetle that's got little, as you'd expect, saw-toothed projections that is found absolutely worldwide. Where there's grain, this guy's there. Now, as to where it actually comes from, I have no idea. <laughs> I've tried to look it up, but it's just, uh, as you find with a lot of, I believe, of um, stored grain pests, we don't know where they've actually originated from, but these species would actually not be able to survive in the wild, like outside of this man-made human habitats. But yes, this little guy, as you may have once again guessed, was introduced by the Romans. So, and if you know where it came from, please let us know. I want to point out that, so a little bit behind the curtain here, we, you know, we type out notes collectively for these episodes. Simona wrote this down and I thought it was a joke. Why? I was just like, that's not a Zoark thing. I mean, it is technically, uh, but... Uh, are they animals? Yes. I mean, are we really going to get into it? Oh, so she's hating on fish and Do we have hating, like two she's hours? She's hating on beetles too. Oh, Listen, wait, I find wait, it... Wait, wait, wait. Why, why are beetles not animals? I don't no, understand. No, not that they're not animals. It's just, you know, it... I don't know. I don't know where I was going Is with it because they don't have internal skeletons? Is that what you're trying to tell us? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It's part of... Is that something I look apologize. at? <laughs> we apologize to the entomological um, community for the offense that they've been caused during this episode. We also want to reiterate that we do not hate the fish community either. <laughs> Except for me. I hate it. I don't care. I will never not care about how much I dislike fish, okay? But beetles never. are cute. Eh, they're okay. I was just surprised. In general, I was just surprised that that was on the uh, list of uh, species we were talking about. Just felt a little out there. But well. to be fair, we all, we do plan on doing a whole episode on kind of buggy things. Just completely out of our wheelhouse. But yeah, ju just just before we break off for this uh, segment, just um, want to point out, I might be stating the obvious, but there's, there's a trend to be seen here, sort of with um, introductions being mostly, you know, happening in the Roman period, but starting off in the Iron no. Age as well. Because you see, like, well, they, they start, God, there were introductions prior to the Iron Age, but as the island was sort of more opening up for trade as it did during the Iron Age. Introductions started happening in larger numbers and then culminating during the Roman period where there was literally just so much traffic of like people and goods just going back and forth all the time. And that's just where so the, almost the bulk of the species have been just thrown en masse into Britain. <laughs> so um, they're just it's an interesting trend to notice. So all together now, thank you, Romans. What have the Romans ever done no, for us? No, I hate the Romans. I hate wow. them being brought up. And I honestly, it annoys me so much. I, I just don't care. And the other, my other problem is that they are often used for, um, by certain 
parts of the political establishment to kind of try and make the idea that Britain has been one nation for thousands of years. So that's why I also don't like them. We oh. want to apologize to any time traveling Romans who are listening to this podcast. Um, we don't mean to offend. Also, how did you get here? That's amazing that you're listening to a podcast. Honestly, if a Roman listens to our podcast out of all the other podcasts, I'll be impressed. You know what? I, I will I will eat my hat. And on that note, uh, we should probably take a break and go on to our last segment. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Okay, we're back. <laughs> we're not going to talk about squirrels ever again on this podcast. Oh, and on the next episode of Arcu Animals, squirrels. <laughs> oh, that'd be so mean to me. <laughs> but we have so many more uh, introductions to talk about, don't we? Well, not so many more. We have a bunch of recent introductions that we want to talk about, or at least mention. <laughs> yeah, just uh, again, a few honorable mentions of uh, introductions that are not so much archaeological, but they are historical. And I guess it should just be titled Victorians Doing Things. Because <laughs> one thing the Victorians did, they went, they went places, they saw an animal, oh that looks cute, I'm gonna bring it back home. So as for our recent introductions extravaganza, we now have in Britain the Chinese water deer, the munjak deer, both from Southeast Asia, known because the males have quite big canines, and they kind of look like dragons. If you see one, they're, they're not so hallucinating. Cool. They're a thing. They exist. They're awesome. Yeah. Also, uh, a recent introduction, the grey squirrel. It's a recent introduction to me, okay? (laughs) Well, and they're an American species. That's now pretty much obliterated the native one. Uh, Redneck wallabies are a thing. They're here. I didn't know that. Wait, 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 what? (laughs) What? What's a redneck wallaby? It's a wallaby. It, it's a, a wallaby. <laughs> and there are gray squirrels like redneck squirrels. Shut up. <laughs> Why do I talk on this podcast at all? Right. So yeah. What- well, you're meant to be in. You're meant to be in charge of it. You should just tell me to be quiet. <sighs> so it won't work. Anyway, redneck wallabies also a thing. Mostly they escape like escapees from petting zoos, and again, Victorians doing things. The well, we're not a hundred percent sure about this, but there might be small pockets of Japanese raccoon dogs in Britain. For, <laughs> I for love those, them. For those who don't know what a Japanese raccoon dog is, it looks like the child of a dog and a raccoon, and they're the only canid that hibernates. We need you to pause the podcast, go on Google, look up Tanookis, and you're welcome because it's great. I'm actually literally looking up a Japanese <laughs> raccoon dog right now. What? What is it? It's like, a delight. And also, if you do have the time, please look up uh, sort of the folklore that they have in Japan surrounding the raccoon dog because it is truly fascinating. But uh, I might Please not. watch uh, the film Palm Poco because it's great. Other recent introduction, the American mink. 
I believe what happened uh, with the American mink is that they were kept in fur farms and they've been uh, released into the wild and now they've taken over. And also, just to mention one of, I'm sure, the many birds that were introduced, the rose-ringed parakeet, which is a small parrot that now lives everywhere. Yeah, it's so weird. And I've got one more introduced animal, though not to Britain, because it is native to Europe, but one that's been introduced pretty much worldwide is the sparrow, the little bird. Because the sparrow is native mainly of Europe and parts of Asia, and it's been since introduced to the American continent, Australia and Africa. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Uh, clearly from this episode, I don't know much. Uh, no, so there is another one. That's one that I didn't know. And I was really surprised to find out about. Because, yeah, it might be a little known fact, or it might be to us sort of still in our 20s, that there used to be a, a quite substantial population of coipus in Britain. So the coipus is a large South American semi-aquatic rodent. So you can look it up, or just for you to picture it, Again, it looks as if a beaver and a capybara and a child, and it will be a coipus. <laughs> it's very cute. Unfortunately, as cute as it is, it's also stupidly invasive. So I think it, it first escaped into the wild in the 30s, again, escaping from fur farms, and uh, it created a substantial population that was actually causing quite a bit of conflict with humans and crops with a borrowing behaviour. So... They've tried to tackle it to eradicate it, and it was successfully eradicated in the 1980s. So up until the late 80s, I believe 1989 was the last sighting, we had a massive rodent just wandering around. <laughs> so yeah. Now it's just me. I'm the massive rodent running around. <laughs> and again, there's a trend to be seen here as well for these more recent introductions, because there seem to be, again, either... Victorians seeing something, oh, that's pretty. I'm going to bring it back, bring it back to Blighty. Uh, and um, animals escaping from fur farms or being released from fur farms. So that's that. Yeah. So kind of bring it even more closer to modern times, I guess. Uh, we figured we'd end this episode talking a bit about uh, applied to archaeology, which I realized we haven't actually talked about uh, on this podcast. To be fair, I actually really didn't know it existed till like a few months ago. <laughs> Uh, but it's super cool, and uh, it's it's awesome to see more archaeological things being applied to uh, modern-day stuff. So uh, applied zooarchaeology is basically using zooarchaeological research uh, to help out with con conservation efforts. So through zooarchaeology, we can learn about what species were present and what habitats they had settled in here in Britain. And uh, we can establish the reasons behind why they disappeared uh, just through the archaeological record and, you know, figure out what went wrong. You know, was it overhunting? Was it habitat depletion, uh, climate change? You know, there's so many reasons why a lot of these species end up disappearing. But uh, by using this kind of data in uh, modern day conservation efforts, we can kind of make better informed choices in terms of uh, are we going to reintroduce the species back into this region? Yeah, because what we can do is uh, use zooarchaeology to provide a pre-human baseline for this species because we can use animal remains in the archaeological record to reconstruct not just past human societies but also the wider environment, so especially 
certain species, and especially thinking of many insects and amphibians, for sure, they're incredibly susceptible to the smallest changes in the environment, and they are very specific niches. So the presence or absence of a particular species can actually tell us an awful lot about what the environment used to look like. Mm-hmm. And you also get yeah other species that are incredibly specialised in terms of what they eat. And again, I'm thinking of certain rodent species. So all of that as a sort of gigantic puzzle sort of brings us together a, a nice, lovely paleo-environmental reconstruction. So I, I think we mentioned this earlier in the episode, but probably one of the, the best examples of kind of reintroduced species is, in fact, the wild boar, which was native. I guess it, again, there's that thing. Was native, is native. Okay, is native, but then again, the population that is here now is not linked to the one that was native to Britain, even though I'm pretty sure, because I think the, the wild boar that is here now, I think, mostly came from sort of Germany, Central Europe, Mm -hmm. unless I'm much mistaken. But then again, like, is there really that much of a difference between a German wild boar and a British wild boar? It's a wild boar. The accent. Have you ever spoken to one? Have you? Who hasn't? I never know. And you make fun of me for not ever seeing a squirrel. Meanwhile, you've never talked to a wild boar. I mean, come on. No, this but, is getting very, uh, how do I say it, very Dr. Doolittle. Oh, you, you knew my name? My real name? Ha ha ha, very funny. It's a very boring movie. <laughs> I speak to my animals all the time. We have beautiful conversations. <laughs> but yes, the wild boar technically went extinct in Britain during the medieval period. Now, it was actually reintroduced several times after that, over like... Uh, from the medieval period, like right after it went extinct, up to the 17th century, where they sort of just went, yeah, all right, fine. And they stopped trying. Now, the current population escaped in the 80s from wild boar farms, or escaped slash was released. Slash nobody knows. But there's wild boar in Britain (laughs) now. There's pockets in the southwest, in the southeast, some even in South Wales. And I think their biggest population is in the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire. Yeah, because I was going to say, I, I believe in Scotland, they're still considered uh, extinct. Uh, at least that's from what I've, uh, from what I understand, especially given that I work with loads of uh, wild boar in uh, assemblages from Scotland. So it's, it is interesting that it's only really in some pockets of Britain that they're roaming the lands again. Well, it's like in terms of introduction, actually, one that we've not covered is the Pine Martin. Because the pine martin also mm, went yeah. extinct in Britain. I'm presuming, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was overhunted, because again, fur. Um, mm. But it's been recently reintroduced in Scotland, I believe, and it's sort of it's made its way down. So it's actually not too long ago they've had a sighting in Derbyshire. Oh, wow. And they've noticed a link that actually uh, the pine martin is, uh, wh- where the pine martin is present, uh, there is a decline in grey squirrels, and so like the red squirrel population is faring a little bit better. Now, I'm not sure if I'm remembering this 100%, so do call me on it in the comments. But the, what they were thinking is that because uh, the grey squirrel so is not used to the pine martin as a predator, sort of historically, it doesn't recognise it as a danger. Or maybe it's not able to get away with as much dexterity as the red squirrel. I'm going to try and find the article and put it put it in the show notes. Pine Martin, just to 
remind me is like a, it's like a little rodent, like a like a ferret or stoat or um, what is a pine martin? It's a mustelid, if that's how you pronounce yeah. it. So it's the same family okay. as the badger. So it looks like a, a sort of like a stoat, but much bigger. Okay. And I don't think I've ever seen a stoat. I I, I, I saw a man with a pet stoat one time. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen... I don't think I pay attention to the outdoors. It certainly doesn't sound like it. <laughs> I work with animals, dead animals for a living. When was the last time you saw sunlight? What's the sun? I'm writing up my PhD right now, so I'm kind of indoors all the time. And now it has fi- the time has finally come for Alex to explore the great outdoors, and we must just end this uh, episode no, no, of no, Archeo no. Animals. I think we should continue outdoors. That's what needs to happen. Alex has to have some recordings from the field to prove that she goes outside. No, I don't want it. I don't want to go outside. I would love it. So like the next time you're in like a like a wooded area and you just like see hundreds of squirrels and you're like, ah, oh, this is where they all are. They're all in the same place. That's why I never saw them. Yeah, you don't know. You don't know where I live. Maybe they just don't exist in this neighborhood. Yeah, maybe maybe they just get chased away. I don't know. I feel very attacked this episode. I just want to point this out. I feel extremely attacked. Perhaps there's just too many pine martins in the area. I've never seen a pine martin either. We would like to apologize to the pine martin community. Why do we always do this? Why do we always make uh, assumptions about certain animals? Because that's how zoo archaeology works. I mean, at least you can't have like introduced fish, right? Like, there's no introduced fish. You can just chug it real hard. Across the sea. Yeah. It's still the same sea, Alex. When I, when I first moved here, I took a handful of fish from the Long Island Sound and I just chucked it real hard. <laughs> <laughs> out what? of the plane I don't know I'm very, we're very sick it's in this house right now the, the flu is coming around I don't know what I'm talking about anymore S- Simona, Simona can you like have uh, introduced fish like does that make sense I mean if you buy an aquarium and you put some fish in it I'm pretty sure you can Actually- like as long as it's, you know, you know, because obviously there's the freshwater, saltwater mm-hmm. difference, but as long as you have that correct, you could technically do it. Actually, no way. Isn't catfish in some places been introduced? Really? Oh, okay. I think uh, so. so but Sorry, we well, should have probably done research about this. <laughs> well, actually, I, I was actually wondering, right, uh, as, as, as this is a, like a more legitimate tangent, this is not just a, <laughs> here's a silly thing I thought of or I wasn't listening. You know how climate change is an inevitable part of our modern life? I'm just wondering when the climate changes enough for habitats to change, which it currently has, and animals that previously didn't, like, weren't able to live somewhere are they native or introduced animals if they now occupy spaces they didn't before because of the changing conditions of climate well i mean i guess humans i mean yeah humans are the reason why the climate's changing so i guess that technically falls under the definition of an introduced species Mm -hmm. but i guess it's more of a long-term thing where if you know, thousands and thousands a year from now, if anyone is still existing on this planet, you know, they can probably say, oh, well, back then they didn't have, you know, elephants in the middle of Manhattan, but now we do. And they've lived here for thousands of years. So they're basically native now. So 
it's a long long time thing you know yeah more speculative i guess really than anything it's too bad mm-hmm. there's no squirrels around in britain though but someone should introduce them I mean, it's not funny if you try and play the joke yourself. I think this is like the chili thing. I'm like, trying to take control of it. <laughs> you can't. You can't. No. <laughs> oh, dear. <sighs> so, Simona, what, what, if you could introduce an animal to the UK, which animal would it be? Go on. Give us something that should be introduced to the UK. Lynx. Why the lynx? Go on. It's native to Britain, it's been here before, and it probably wouldn't have that much of an impact on the population. And I'm taking this way more seriously than I should have, haven't I? <laughs> no, 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 keep going, keep going. I'm actually generally interested because obviously the lynx is no longer, well, not no longer native, but it's no longer, it's an extinct species in the UK because obviously, I don't know, it was hunted to extinction, was like killed for farmland or whatever. Uh, bringing it back, I mean, is it, uh, we're re-nativizing it? I mean, I don't know what the term is, but if it's been away uh, for re-wildling. so long. Sorry, yeah. rewildling. The, the, the introduction mm-hmm. of uh, the lynx is part of a rewildling campaign. Yeah, yeah, so look, you said introducing it, the links to Scotland specifically. Yeah, so you said you don't think it will actually have that much of an effect, but it's not been around for such a long time, and you know, animals in that time have then adjusted to it not being there. What makes you say it might not have such a big effect? Just because comparatively, at looking at countries with similar densities and what the behaviour of the links is, because the links, you know, is a fairly shy predator that's not going to go out of its way and assault a family that's camping if that makes sense like it's not as problematic as other predators that may actively attack and prey on humans the lynx sort of like keeps to itself and the the Mm -hmm. sorry wolves can do but again i'm I'm not a behaviorist or biologist so probably not the best person to ask but it the wolf is definitely slightly more problematic than the lynx i honestly don't know Mm-hmm. Oh no! It's just I know that they want to really introduce the wolf. That's all. We are basically like me and Simona. We're kind of just half of this discussion because, like I said before, you know, applied to archaeology is a thing, but it works hand in hand with uh, active conservation methods right now and uh, active studies in the behaviors and biology of these animals that they want to reintroduce. So realistically, I guess like me and Simona couldn't necessarily give a. I mean, Simona probably more than me, but um, you know, I can only we can only say really like the past of this animal uh, and you have to like leave it up to uh, you know someone who's a biologist or a ecologist to fill in the, the blanks of what happens if we reapply it into today it's good we'll have to see you know the landscape has changed and of course our population density has changed and uh, the, there's a whole series of factors and also looking you know if the animal does end up preying on livestock what system are you going to be putting in place to compensate the farmers because you know like that could throw like a a very well thought of like breeding plan out of the window and that is not just the loss of your livestock that's a lot of money that's a border so you know systems should be put in place and uh, so it's it's a lot more complicated than just thinking oh there used to be mammoths here three thousand years ago so we should probably engineer some and bring them to britain because that's a bit of an exaggeration but it's just it's um there's a lot more at play than just merely looking at what species were native because it doesn't automatically mean that the environment will be as 
the same as it used to be and that species would thrive like it once did if that makes sense no that's a really good point i mean i would love to have mammoths back you know like i'm i'm totally up for that or maybe a mastodon or two as well that'd be cool but i don't think they'll survive the uk summer not with how it's been recently if you go back far enough we had hippos so bring some of them as well no 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 stop stop the tape when did we have hippos about two hundred thousand years ago yeah, well, they actually, oh. um, in where I live, I'm not going to dox myself, but uh, just saying where I live, there was a little monument, not monument, but like a little sign where they found hippo bones. So cool. sure they found hippos under Trafalgar Square as well. Oh, yeah, so- I don't live in Trafalgar Square, so. Ha. <laughs> no, you're not a pigeon. Um, there so are pigeons see- here? Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, so... Hippos are native uh, to the UK. Squirrels are not. They don't exist. Uh, squirrels are a conspiracy, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's crazy. I don't know where this has gone. This show has gone really weird. So I, I feel like we've completely inverted uh, everything <laughs> we were saying at the start. <laughs> What's real anymore, guys? I don't, I, I, it's, it really is though. I think if anything, that's a running theme is that it is a set of like perspective in terms of like, when do you consider something native or introduced? Or if you're me, if you actually notice the animal at all. So it's all in our minds, y'all. That, that was our ploy all along, making everyone question everything. Anyway, I guess that's a good way to wrap up. <laughs> this was all definitely a joke. And I was definitely joking when I said the squirrel story. So please don't take away my PhD. Remember to uh, like and share and subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get podcasts. Or uh, you can also listen to us, of course, at uh, archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Anything else, Simona? Oh, follow us on Twitter. Abs. I love chili. Squirrel chili. Oh, no. That's it. That's a t-shirt. It's just squirrel chili. No, hippo chili. Hippos are... (laughs) Hippos are a native to the UK. Debate me. Change my mind. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Do you guys think hippo tastes good? It probably does. I mean, come on, that's like meaty. It's like hippos are meaty. They're like just water cows, aren't they? I guess. If anyone's eaten a hippo, can you, like, send us a message on Twitter, please? Thank you. (laughs) I don't like where this is going. (laughs) I just want to know. I just want to talk to you. (laughs) Uh, Just pretend it's for your reference collection. That'll get it through customs.
Right, let's wrap this up properly. Thank you to everybody who was listening. It's been Alex and Simona here on Arcue Animals. Share it with everybody, and I mean absolute error, everybody. Your parents, your grandparents, your relatives, anybody who cares about you, share this episode and all the other ones. There's ones about fish bones. There's ones about cats. There's ones about dogs. There's ones about sheep. There's ones about deer. Lots of deer. Fallow deer. And not so fallow deer. So, yeah, it's everything. And, yeah, you should definitely share it around. Anything you guys want to say before we go? Please don't send this to any of my PhD supervisors. I don't want them to know that I have not noticed squirrels until now. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.